Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. I wanted to encourage us to turn to Exodus uh, chapter 17, verses 8 to 16. Exodus chapter 17, verse 8 to 16. That will be our passage for this morning. And just as a reminder, uh, you might want to refresh your browser just in case the sermon notes don't pop up on the side. Uh, you might need to get the latest update. Or you can also download the mobile app, and the mobile app will allow you to actually follow along with the sermon notes as well with some fill-in-the-blanks. So uh, check out uh, that. Uh, I've been really enjoying the sermon series that we've been talking about lately called Forward, and we have this beautiful background uh, here uh, talking about in light of everything that we know about God, His providence, His goodness, how can we take steps moving forward to take steps of faith and actually exercise our faith in a tangible way. In the past couple of weeks, we talked about uh, what does it mean to move forward in obedience. And uh, Pastor Seth talked about how God will initiate our faith, but we have to activate our faith. We have to do something about it if we want to see God really work in a powerful way. And then last week, we talked about forward in investment, where we talked about how when we believe that God is the source, then we will see God provide the resource. And I've been really enjoying seeing how even in our life groups and our Bible studies, we've been able to take steps, whether it's going through the lockdown, whether it's still reaching out to people, whether it's going, uh, reaching out to people over Zoom or having those smaller group discussions, being able to see us move actively and exercise the things that we're learning about God has been such a joy. And today, as we continue to move forward, we want to talk about forward and partnership. How can we take steps? How can we work together? How can we collaborate as a church? And as brothers and sisters in Christ, to be able to see God's kingdom moving forward in our lives and in this city. And even as we talk about partnership, for some people that might be, you know, fun, collaborative, working with others, some of us might have this really bad taste or this feeling like, oh no, working with people. And I'm wondering how many of us we've been part of a bad team before. We've had a really bad experience working with other people whether it's uh, at your workplace where you had a team, whether your supervisor or other colleagues that you just didn't really get along with and the project was not fun, you dreaded going to work every single day. Or maybe you were in a part of a group project in school and you had free riders and you had all these people who really didn't do anything. And, you know, that, that colors our experience about good teams or bad teams or just working together in general. And I, I always wanted to be part of a good team. And I, I had a certain view of what good teams were growing up. Uh, I actually uh, was on a team that went to a national tournament. I, I grew up in the U.S., so I went to a national tournament, and I thought, you know, I was really proud of the achievement. And uh, our team was really diverse. We were smart. We were from all different backgrounds. We were in primary school. Uh, it was a, a chess team, and I was a, kind of a nerd. I still am a nerd. Um, but... It was a chess team, and I realized, you know, I really thought that was like a really good team. And we were all pumped, and we were going to this national tournament, and, you know, we had a kid from Albania. There was a guy from the U.S. I was Chinese-American, and like, yeah, we have this great and amazing team, and we're going to conquer. We're going to beat this other teams in chess as primary school students. We even had like a t-shirt. We called ourselves the Roosevelt. My, my primary school was called Roosevelt, so we're called the Roosevelt Rooks. Those of you who don't know chess, there's a rook in the chess game. And, uh, you know, we went there excited and we're like, we're this great team. And w- what ended up happening, we, we lost pretty, <laughs> pretty easily, pretty quickly. 
And we got dominated uh, by so many other different uh, students and children in that tournament. And I think it made me really think, like, were we really a good team? Is diversity, is just being individually smart sufficient for having good partnership? Or is there something else? And I think what we grow up with or our view of teams growing up can really influence how we see teams today. And, and the, the, the issue with us and the thing that we have to deal with with reality is we all have to work in teams. It's just part of human nature, part of human society, unless you go live on an island and you're a hermit by yourself. But we all have to work with people. And with that, if there was a formula to say this is what makes a great team, that would be great, wouldn't it? If we could say just follow X, Y, and Z principles and you can have a great team, then I think all of us, we would be part of great teams. All of us would be thriving in our workplace. We would find work enjoyable. We would find school less boring or less tread, you know, burdensome. And there have been people studying teams for a long time and people who think that there is a formula. And I want to actually show us a video about a company called Google. Some of you might know uh, what Google is. And uh, they're quite an accomplished company and they have lots of data so they actually went and set out to do a project to find out and discover what makes a really great team what are the principles can we narrow it down to just one or two things that if you implement this then you can actually work together well and partner well together with other people so let's watch this together as we talk about what makes a great team wow i I, I want to work. I always wanted to work at Google, and I still want to work at Google. And uh, when we think about how much data Google possibly has on people all over the world, there must be some truth to that. Whether it's the uh, conversational turn taking or the instantaneous listening, like wow, Google unlocked the secret of good teamwork. But the question is, sure, they might have determined it, it requires conversational turn taking or instantaneous listening. How do you actually get people to do that? How do you get the boss or the colleague in your team to stop talking over every single person? How do you get your, your, your friend or your groupmate to, to listen to people actively instead of playing on their phone or playing or, you know, when you're on Zoom, doing other stuff while you're supposed to have a group project? That's the question for us, and that still doesn't solve the problem of what really creates great teams because we have so many people in this world that don't do these very things that Google is saying is important for team ownership. And so that much more for us as the church, if we are to be the light, if we are to be the city and the hill, how can we exemplify good working relationships, good partnerships that it will show other people? Let I, I pray that one day Google would not be the, the herald or the top of all great teamwork. It would be the church. It will be the church because we're the, we're the advocates of God's kingdom. We're the ones who are shining the light. We're the ones who are proclaiming Jesus is Lord. So can we, as the church, be able to discover and demonstrate what it means to partner together well? How can we, through all the great difficulties that we're going through today, whether it's the pandemic, the lockdown, the quarantine, whether it's the political situation, even looking forward or not looking forward to geopolitical tensions between the U.S. and China and potentially having the next Cold War, things like that, how can the church play its part to help grow and bless society around us. And so right before we get into the text, I want us to break up in just a mini huddle group, not too long, about four or five minutes or so, and just talk about 
two questions when it comes to teamwork. And what does it take for us to be good team members, to partner well together with others as we talk about forward in partnership? So the two questions are right here, are going to be on the screen. The first one is, what character traits of a team member do you think are most important to help teams achieve success? And the second is, what makes it so difficult to live out those traits? So go ahead, and some of you might be on Zoom uh, with your life group. Some of you might have just sharing in your WhatsApp group. Whatever way is fine. If you haven't joined one or you're not part of a life group, again, like Pastor said mentioned earlier, on the online page, there's a Zoom link that uh, if you're not part of life, you can actually join to have more in-person or uh, online discussions with others to make this more interactive. So go ahead and uh, have that discussion. We'll come back in about four to five minutes. So go ahead and do that. Well, well, hope you had a great discussion and we're able to talk a little bit more about those traits. Because actually, as we go into this passage in Exodus, we're going to talk about what traits are necessary to help us move forward in partnership and have great teamwork relationships uh, in our context. And so hopefully you've turned to Exodus 17, verses 8 to 16. And we're going to just start with verse 8. And so I'll read it here. It says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. I'm going to stop right there and just give us some background about what's happening with the Israelites and the situation, the difficulty they encountered that forced them to practice good teamwork and have good partnership to help them get through this time. The situation that the Israelites found themselves in, there's a couple things that we have to know as we go into this passage. The first is that they had left Egypt almost two months prior. So after they were in Egypt for 400 years, oppressed under slavery, then God brings them out using Moses. They cross the Red Sea. They go into the wilderness. And then that had been almost two months to that this point. And throughout that whole process, they were wandering, sometimes without water and without food. And if we look at the previous couple chapters in 15, Exodus 15 and 16, we see they're constantly complaining. Where's the food? Where's the water? And uh, there's actually a map that I'm going to show on the screen that shows you the, the journey that went, they went through in the wilderness. They started back in Egypt, which is the beginning of the red line. And they made their way down. And you see there's a little arrow at the bottom middle of the screen. That's where Rephidim is. And that, that journey, uh, there are a lot of different maps that talk about the potential routes. And this is just one of them. But most scholars will agree that Rephidim was somewhere in the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula. From the beginning of their journey to that point was almost 400 kilometers. Can you imagine for almost two months just walking through the wilderness, not knowing what you're going to eat, not knowing what you're going to drink, complaining against a God that you don't really know, and going through all these things, and then as they were questioning whether or not God was with them, then we see that they they encountered their first military encounter after leaving Egypt. It's ironic because Rephidim is actually a Hebrew word for rest. So that was supposed to be a place of rest. But then all of a sudden we see in verse 8 that Amalek, Amalek was another group of people, descendant of Esau. Amalek comes to fight with them at Rephidim. And in Deuteronomy, we see a different perspective on the same situation. Deuteronomy 25 verse 17, it says, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind They had no fear of God. So Israel is in this situation, a seemingly impossible situation, where they're tired, they're weary, they're complaining, they have no food, no water. And again, 
an enemy comes to attack them. The first enemy that they have to encounter as they're in the wilderness. So the question is, what will Israel do? What will Israel leaders do? How will they work together? What traits do they need to exhibit in order to accomplish this seemingly difficult and insurmountable difficulty? And hopefully it speaks to us in the difficulties and the situations that we're in today and how we can work together to overcome those things. So let's continue in reading on verses 9 to 13. Let's pick it up at verse 9. It says, So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hand grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on each side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. And so when we look at these first few verses in verses 9 to 13, I want to just focus on one first point that talks about how we can move forward in partnership. And the way that we do that is we have to rely on one another. We have to learn to rely on one another. And we notice uh, three traits that are required for genuine partnership. And we see this exhibited in the people of Joshua, Aaron and Hur, and Moses. And I want to look at who they are and the, the traits that they exhibit in this small interaction that helps us to see what does godly partnership really look like. And the first trait that we see is that we must trust. We have to learn to trust. Verse 9 is the first time in the Bible that the person of Joshua is actually mentioned. And many of us, we may know Joshua for his greater uh, conquering of the territory of Canaan. He was uh, Moses' right-hand man. Uh, but this is actually 40 years before Joshua actually did all those things because this is now when they're wilderness. They had to wander in the desert for another 40 years. And even when Joshua was, you know, made the leader of the Israelites, he was still afraid. Joshua, in chapter 1, there are promises where God is saying, you know, don't be worried, don't be anxious, be strong and courageous, for I am with you. But we realize there was some uncertainty that Joshua had. So if Joshua had uncertainty at that point, how much more when he's young and fresh and Israel had just come out of Egypt, would he be worried and anxious and nervous about what he's ought to do? And we see Moses gives Joshua two instructions here. He says, number one, choose for us men. Number two, go out and fight with Amalek. I don't know about you, but if I were Joshua, I'd be like, uh, what? You want me to what? First of all, Moses, what are you doing? You're the leader. Shouldn't you go out and fight the battle? This is our first ever battle. Shouldn't Moses, the leader with the staff of God, the the power of God, go out and, and win this battle with Amalek? Or, or why not Aaron? Aaron is, Aaron is Moses' brother. He's the one who represented Israel to Pharaoh and spoke and did all these things. Why can't Aaron do this? And there must have been so many things going through Joshua's mind. But what do we notice about Joshua's response? What did he do? It says in that verse, it says that he just listened to Moses. He did as Moses commanded him. Of course, we don't, between verse 9 and verse 10, we're not sure exactly what might have gone through Joshua's mind or what might he have said, or he might have complained, or said all these things, but he still obeyed. 
he still obeyed. He didn't outwardly complain. He didn't give all these excuses. He didn't run away. And the question for us is, why was Joshua able to respond this way? Why was Joshua, in light of something that seems so scary and, and, and possibly impossible, and, and I'm sure the Israelites probably were not super excited and ready to go out into battle, for Joshua to lead that, he had to have confidence and charisma to lead the people. What allowed him to actually take that step? There's a principle that when we think about trust that just overarches the whole Bible, is that if we trust in God and his sovereignty, when we trust in God and his sovereignty, we talked about this in the book of Ruth, we talked about God's providence, that no matter what situations or what circumstances that might be going on around you, that you will be able to move forward. And I'm wondering if that was what Joshua experienced, if that's what was what Joshua was able to do. He was able to trust in God, in His sovereignty and His providence, that doesn't matter how scary or how worried or how unreasonable it seemed like the demand that Moses put on him was, that he was able to take a step of faith. And how many of us, we've had a boss or a supervisor who micromanages us. We hate it. We absolutely hate it. That, that boss is like every single day or every like, couple hours checking out, like, what, what did you work on? Did you get this done yet? You know, I need that report right now. Or that group member is like, why didn't you do this the way I wanted you to do it? Let me just do it for you. It doesn't inspire any sense of being able to take a step of faith or work together as a team. Or, or vice versa, have you ever micromanaged it? Or have, have you ever been in a group where you didn't trust someone else? What did that do or what did that cause to that person? It probably was deflating, unmotivating, caused them to free ride even more. And I'm wondering if we shift our perspective because oftentimes, regardless of whether we think we put our trust in someone or not, all the time, whenever we're in a group, whenever working in a team, we're always putting our trust in something. Whether it's in ourselves, by being self-sufficient, we think that we have to do everything, or we're putting our trust in other people, that they're somehow going to get everything done for us. And that's the problem, is when we put our trust in people, when we put our trust and other things, then we're always going to be disappointed. But when we learn to trust in God, that no matter what is expected of us, no matter what circumstances are going around us, then we will be able to accomplish and carry out the task or responsibility that has been given to, to us. And some of us might be like, yeah, but it's so hard, and there's so many emotions accompanying my boss, and I just can't think through this properly. What do we see as encouragements in the Psalms? We see this in Psalm 56, verses 3 to 4. In the ESV, let's read it together when you see the yellow. It says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? I put my trust in you, in you. He's speaking to God. He's not speaking to anyone else. When he's fearful, he turns to God. Psalm 20, verse 7, it says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some others, they trust in other things, worldly things, worldly skills or abilities or people. That manager's really good, so let's let him do everything. But no, we put our trust in the Lord, so that motivates me to say, God, I want to do what I can do, even though it's hard, even though I feel inadequate, even though other people might be able to do it better. Let me do what I am responsible for. 
Jeremiah 17, verse 7 to 8. Read it together in the yellow. It says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. I'm wondering how many of us, we put our trust in people, we put our trust in skills, we put our trust in tools or structures or all these other things. And that really hinders us from being able to work together with other people. Because then either we get really discouraged or insecure or worried, or we get really proud, we tend to take over everything, and then it still disrupts our relationships with others. Some of us, we worship our bosses. Our bosses become our gods. We put our trust in them. And so that causes us, not that we put our trust in them in a good way. Sometimes we put their trust in them in a bad way. We're saying, okay, well, they're the boss. They got to do everything. And so, you know, forget this. I don't want to do anything because they're such a horrible boss. But if you imagine God as your boss, God as your supervisor, God as your team leader, I'm wondering if the way that you work, the way that you contribute to the team will look that much different and be that much more a light and a representation to those working around you. So we must trust the other trait, the next one. Let's look at Aaron and her life. We must be other-centered. The other trait is that we must be others-centered. In verse 10 and 12 is the only place in this passage that Aaron and her are mentioned. And pretty much they're just mentioned along with Moses. So it says Moses, Aaron and her went to the top of the hill. And then in verse 12, it says when Moses' hands grew weary, what did Aaron and her do? They just held up his hands. One on each side. And, you know, Aaron and her, so Aaron was supposed to be um, Moses' right-hand person. He, you know, pretty much was a Moses' spokesperson when he was too afraid. And then her, we don't know so much about her, but we're uh, assuming that her is also somewhat in second or third command in that moment. And we recognize that they really didn't have much responsibility you know, if, if we we're looking at what they were supposed to do, their only job was to hold up Moses' hands. That was their only job. And as someone in second in command or someone who wanted that title or that influence or the responsibility, I'm wondering if some of them, they felt like, why, why couldn't I take the army out to battle? Why can't I lead the people? Why can't I be given something more significant or more important to do? Why, why are you assigning this little task that doesn't really do anything like I don't know if Aaron was on the left hand or the right hand but Aaron probably could have literally been Moses's right hand man like literally holding up Moses's right hand and that's all he did I'm wondering if for some of us we've served in church before we've been part of certain ministry teams we do sometimes we feel this way God like I'm part of this team but why do I get this responsibility Like, your only job is just to turn on the lights or turn off the lights. And you're waiting the whole time, through the whole celebration. Okay, turn on the lights at this time. Turn off the lights at this time. And it feels such an insignificant responsibility. Or or maybe you're the spray guy or the spray girl at the front of the door. This is back when we had in-person celebration, right? People would come in, check your mask, spray, spray. All right, next person, go on. And that's your only job, just to press the little button twice. On people's hands. Or, or maybe you're the, you're the photos person. After the photo, you're not even the camera person, you're the photo uploading person. <laughs> Where literally you just sit there, 
you take the photos and then you click upload and it goes into whatever Google Drive or whatever cloud service that you have. And you're like, oh, I'm the photo archiving person. Like, I'm wondering if some of we feel is like some insignificant or small little task that like, why, God, why, why is it me? Why, why am I the ones rolling up the cords every single day? Why is it me that I have to carry the equipment? Why is it me that, you know, for life, I, I just have to send out a reminder about birthdays. Oh, my God. Okay, reminder, birthdays, reminder, refreshments, reminder, we don't do refreshments anymore because of the COVID situation. You know, there's so many things that we're, we could be complaining about, like, God, why am I given this insignificant role? And I'm wondering, I'm challenging us, if we have that mindset, it points and it reveals that we have a very self-centered mindset. We don't have a very other-centered mindset. And we get into this very self-centered mindset, then all of those little tasks will seem like very random responsibilities that we have no ownership with, that are really purposeless and meaningless, and we have no joy. We find no joy or purpose in them. But if we were to be other-centered, then it will completely change our perspective. If you are other-centered, then it doesn't matter what your task is that you will be able to wholeheartedly contribute to the team because you know that you are part of something bigger, part of a bigger purpose, part of a bigger team, part of a bigger vision of what you're trying to accomplish. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 to 18. In the New Living Translation, it says, Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I am not part of the body because I am not a hand, that does not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear says, I am not part of the body because I am not an eye, would that make it any less part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? Or if your whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But if our bodies have many parts and God has put each part just where he wants it, how strange a body would it be if it had only one part? Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. I want to read that verse 18 in the Amplified Version. It says, But now as things really are, read it together, it says, God has placed and arranged the parts in the body, each one of them, just as he willed and saw fit with the best balance of function. How many of us, we think this way? When we're given responsibility, we're given a task, we're part of a team, that we realize the role, the function that I'm playing, God has placed and arranged me in this body, in this church, in this life group, in this ministry team, in this workplace perfectly because there's a role that I'm supposed to play and I want to do it wholeheartedly. I'm wondering if we had this mentality, we would have more ownership. We would think of others. We wouldn't complain. If there's a need that arises, we wouldn't be like, nah, I, I don't feel like this is my responsibility. It's all about me and, you know, I can't put myself out there. But we would say, no, use me, God. Help me be, I want to be enthusiastic because no matter how difficult or weird or small the responsibility seems or inconvenient to me, then God, I want to do this because it's going to accomplish something greater. You know that TEAM acronym? T-E-A-M? Together, everyone achieves more. It doesn't say you by yourself, you achieve more. It says together as we work together. I'm wondering if so many of us are hindered in our teamwork because we're not team players, because we're so self-centered. We're so selfish. We're just completely the opposite heart of what God wants us to have. And in fact, it's going to cause a lot of teams to suffer. It's going to cause a lot of teams to die. Now, how about us? Do we take ownership in being part of the body? Do we think about others? Or are we consumed with our own preferences? 
Let's grow in other-centeredness. And lastly, the third trait is not only that we must trust or we must be other-centered, but we must be humble. We have to be humble. Let's look at Moses now. So we talked about Joshua, we talked about Aaron and her. Let's look at Moses. And in verse 12, as we look at that verse again, it says, Moses, his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And we know that the night before, Moses had told Joshua, tomorrow I'm going to go up to the hill, you go do the battle. So as we think about the timeline, we realize Moses probably was on top of the hill holding up his hands for at least half a day, if not more than half a day. Several hours, minimum. And his hands were probably up there for the entirety of the day. He was probably tired. And, and some of you, like, you miss like in-person worship. I'm not sure if, you know, you're at home and at home you're standing and you're worshiping. Praise the Lord if you're doing that. But you know, like some of you know, and this is something I, I always struggled with when I was an undergrad, especially when, um, I was only more in the congregation. Like I would be lifting up my hands and then, you know, when you're getting really blessed by a worship song and you're singing, Lord, you know, praising Him. And then you have this, the hands up for like a chorus or a verse. And then slowly your hands start to teeter and you feel this burn right here or right here. And you're like, oh, Lord, and the praise goes down. But then the praise goes back up. And the praise goes back down, right? And then it burns. It, it's sore. You get sore and you get tired. And, you know, for us, it's only a couple minutes of the song. You're like, how many more choruses do I keep my hands up for? Can you imagine how long Moses had to keep his hands up with the staff in his hand to keep that battle raging on to make sure that Joshua would win the battle? And so for, for Moses, it required humility. It required humility for him to have the foresight to know that he needed to bring Aaron and her along with him. He, was, he knew he couldn't do it himself. He knew that as he went up, that it would be hard, that he was not capable on his own. I'm wondering how many of us we recognize in a team when we're given some kind of responsible, we're partnering together with other people that we exhibit that kind of humility, where we exhibit this attitude that, God, I, I can't do this by myself. I'm not able to. And not only, can you imagine if Moses was only so humble as to recognize he couldn't do it when he got there? Like if he went up to the hill, everyone's in battle. He's holding up his arms saying, oh, I'm getting tired. And he has to run down the hill to find Aaron and her and then run back up the hill. It just wouldn't work. They probably would have lost the battle. But for us, humility means not only knowing that I can't or I need help in that moment, but it's knowing in advance. Knowing I'm going to be going into this situation. I know that I might slip up. I know that there are things that I don't even know that I don't even know. And so I need help. I want to invite other people to ask me. I'm going to ask help proactively. And that's what's going to make a good team. 1 Peter 5.5, New Living Translation. It says, And all of you dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, He will lift you up in honor. How many of us, we recognize that it's when we are self-sufficient, when we're proud, when we think that we can do it, when we think we know, that's when that we get humbled. But if we were to humble ourselves first, then we realize that's when God promises that He's going to lift us up. He's going to allow us to succeed in ways that we never imagined that we could. Matthew 23, verse 12 in the New Century Version says, Whoever makes himself great will be made humble. Whoever makes himself humble will be made great. There's a saying, I don't know who says this, but you can either be 
you can either humble yourself or you can be humiliated. That's your choice. As we work in a team together with other brothers and sisters in any context, we have to adopt this posture of humility. Otherwise, yeah, in any situation where we don't ask for help, or even sometimes we get advice, but we don't take it because we think we know better. That that's going to cause us to fail. That's going to cause us to struggle. That's going to cause us to, to go through so many things that we didn't have to go through if we were to first humble ourselves. And I'm wondering, in various group contexts that you have, partnerships that you have, teamwork-oriented situations that you have, I'm wondering if your lack of humility is the very reason why people don't like working with you. I'm wondering if behind your back, people are like, yeah, don't, oh my God, I don't want to be in that group with that person. Like, oh, I, I can't, I don't want to work with that person because he's so proud. He constantly does everything by himself and every single time he does things by himself, he never does it well. Or he, he misses this thing or he forgets this thing and the whole thing is ruined. I'm wondering if we will step back and say, look at ourselves, say, maybe I am proud. Maybe I, I have lost that aspect of humility. That's why I'm not a good team player. Some of us were on the other side of the spectrum. We're like, I'm not proud. I think I'm really bad at everything. Well, you're insecure proud. <laughs> you're insecure proud. And no one wants to work with you either. Sorry, that might be a little offensive. But who wants to work with someone like, oh, I can't do anything. I'm horrible. You, you do everything. I'm not going to do anything. No one wants to work with someone like that. In order to be a good team player, in order to work together well, we have to adopt a humble attitude and a humble mindset. And so there were those three things that we talked about. The first is that we must trust, we must be other-centered, and we must be humble. And I'm hoping and I'm praying that as we learn some of these traits, that we will say, God, help me to develop in these so that I can partner together well with others around me. And we want to go into the second point, but right before that, I'm going to give us just a couple minutes. Uh, I know that time has gone by, so maybe just about four minutes or so to break out into huddle groups and just to talk about some of these questions as we're reflecting more internally about how we rely on one another and what kind of partnership traits that we exhibit. And the first question is, of the three traits, trust, other-centeredness, and humility, which are the most difficult for you to exercise when partnering with others and why? And the second question is how can you take one step forward in developing these traits? How can you grow in these areas uh, in your relationship with God? So go ahead, and I'll just give us about four minutes or so, and then we'll finish out with the second point. All right, let's get back together, and hopefully you had some good discussion and different aspects of how to actually grow and develop in those traits. Uh, so as we talked about in the first point, is that we need to rely on one another. If we want to move forward in partnership, we need to rely on one another. And the second point uh, the last point is that we need to rely on God through prayer. We have to rely on God through prayer. I, I want to revisit uh, verses 9 and then read the remainder uh, 14 through 16. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I just want to point out a couple things. And I want us to look at those verses and notice how many times the word hands are used as we look into the second point. So we see in verse 9, Moses is telling Joshua that he will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God, of God in my hand. And we look down to verse 11. It says, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. And then we see in verse 12, when Moses was getting weary, Aaron and Hur held up his hands. 
And so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And then let's pick up and read the last verses 14 to 16. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the Lord, the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So as we talk about relying on God through prayer, we see this just constant focus on Moses' hands. And, you know, who knows, Moses might have been a hand model or something like that. But why is there so much focus on Moses' hands? What was so significant about it? And we, we see a couple of things. The first thing that we see is that the staff of God that Moses was holding in his hands was an instrument of God's power. Moses got it when he encountered God and he used it in his interaction with Pharaoh. In some of the miracles, he used the staff of God to demonstrate and to show Pharaoh how powerful God was. And then even throughout the wilderness, he used the staff to break uh, open the rock and allow water to come out. And so it was constantly a symbol or instrument of God's power. And it shows that Moses knew that it had to be God's power and that relying on one another in terms of Moses and Aaron and Joshua, that wasn't sufficient. That God was somehow important in the whole situation. So why, why lifting of the hands? Well, we see that also not only was the staff of God an instrument of God's power, but uplifted hands were a posture of prayer. It was a posture, and we see this all throughout the Psalms. In the Old Testament, we see in Psalm 141, verse 2, it says, and then read it again in the yellow, let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So that that prayer is is seen as incense, and it's paralleled with the lifting of, of hands, which is which is the sacrifice, which is the incense. So there's something about lifting of hands that's correlated with prayer. In Psalm 63, 4, it says, So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. So as they're praying in your name, in God's name, they're lifting up their hands. Psalm 28, verse 2, it says, Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. So we see all throughout Scripture that lifting of hands is a sign of prayer, which is a sign of dependence and trusting God. That's sometimes why in worship times, we people raise up their hands. Why? Part of it is, uh, a, a demonstration of surrender to God. Sometimes it's it's reaching out to God. Sometimes it's just saying, God, I'm depending on you and I can't do anything. It's all all of that integrated in a symbol. And for Moses, that means that his action of lifting up his hands, why lifting his hands was so important through the whole time, wasn't so much just the hands were raised. It wasn't so much just Aaron and her just had to lift up hands because somehow lifting of hands just was special. But it meant that Moses was praying the whole time. Moses was interceding the whole time that he was on top of the hill, lifting his hands. And so then, when Moses is praying, then the Israelites, what? They would win. When Moses stopped praying, he left his hands out, he was tired, then what would happen? Then the Israelites would start to lose. And I'm wondering if some of us, we don't see the importance of prayer as Moses did. We don't see the perseverance of prayer as Moses saw it. Some of us, we think that Joshua, Moses, Aaron, and her, that combination is sufficient. That's how we live our lives, right? We were like, okay, as long as all the partnership is tight, 
all the roles and responsibilities are clarified, then we should be able to do anything. But we can tell by our prayer lives, we can tell by our response, we can tell by how we work together in teams and how much we depend on prayer, what we believe about God. And how we respond is really revealing to what our prayer life is like. I'm wondering if some of us, like the only time we pray is before a meal, three times a day. Lord, I thank you for the breakfast. Lord, I thank you for the lunch. Lord, I thank you for the dinner. And our prayers are really short. Great. Short prayers are great. Sometimes we just limit it to that. And that's the extent we have a relationship with God. Or maybe it's like a minute in the morning and a minute right before we go to bed and kind of pray as we're going to sleep and that lulls us to sleep. Like, is that our prayer? If that, is that the dependence on God that we have? Is that how we feel like we're going to win these battles? Is that how we believe that God is going to help us to overcome? By prayerlessness? Or by just going about our relationship with God as a casual you know, transaction that we just got to pray when it's, we're supposed to during the meal times or when we come, when we come to pray, the only time we pray is sometimes when we come to life group. And now that we're on Zoom, it's like just praying by ourselves. And when our life group leader says to pray, we just sit there quietly. Do we value prayer? Do we believe that prayer is actually effective? How do we know Moses believes that? He could have just been lifting his hands. Well, we see his response to the whole situation after Joshua conquers and defeats the Amalekites. We see Moses' response, and we saw that in verses 14 to 15. The thing I want to highlight is that Moses builds an altar, and he calls it, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. And and a lot of us that maybe we've grown up in church, we know that there are these names of God. And some of us, we've grown up knowing that there's a name of God called Jehovah Nisi. And that is the Hebrew or the common English translation of the Lord is my banner. So Jehovah Nisi. And according to the Strong's Concordance, the word banner in the original Hebrew, the word Nis, which means a standard, ensign, signal, or a sign. It's a, it's a banner. It's kind of like a war flag. When armies would go into battle, they would carry a banner. They would carry a flag. They would carry a, a sign. Sometimes in those times, they didn't have cloth flags. Sometimes it would just be a pole. It would be something high up that was visible that people could look to as the focus. We see this in Psalm 60, verse 4 to 5. It says, You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer this. So we see in those times, banners were signs or means of deliverance. It was, a, it was something to focus on. It was something of importance. It was something that would sustain. It was something that would deliver and conquer all the situations, all the difficulties that they were going through. And I'm wondering, for some of us, we might be sitting there, but God, what does a flag do for me? What does a, what does a pole do for me? A coat of arms, that's, that's, that's old, ancient war history. I, I don't go into my meetings with this, Banner of God, like, okay, now I'm ready to conquer this team. Or someone's like, oh, okay, my banner is my, my cross necklace here. I got this cr- nice shiny cross necklace. That's my banner. Look at me, God. I'm wearing you on my chest. And that's my symbol representing, and I believe that this cross is going forth for me, and I'm going to conquer all these things. I would guess that many of us we're really thinking, God, why, why isn't your banner doing anything for me? Where are you? What, what, what's the point of praying? If I'm looking at that banner, the, that pole doesn't do anything for me. 
How, how does it help? How, how does it actually change my mindset? How does that actually, when I look to you, when I pray to you, how does that change anything about the situation that I'm going through? Sometimes when we pray, it feels like we're helpless. That there's no, no one else, that God isn't there, that we, we feel like we're missing something. But I'm wondering if that's the very place that God wants us to be. I'm wondering if that's the very lesson that God wants to teach us. Is that we're helpless because we don't have the immediate result. We can't see the immediate achievement or accomplishment. But that's where God wants to grow us in a desperation of prayer and of seeking Him that will change what we believe about who He is, about looking to Him, and what kind of power that will exhibit in our lives. R.C. Sproul in the book Prayer of the Lord, he says this, really succinctly he says prayer does change things all kinds of things but the most important thing it changes is us as we engage in this communion with God more deeply and come to know the one with whom we are speaking more intimately that growing knowledge of God reveals to us all the more brilliantly who we are and our need to change in conformity to him prayer changes us profoundly I'm wondering for us that if this whole, the Lord is my banner, the reason why we don't see any power in that, why we don't see that as our hope, why we don't see that as our deliverance, why we don't, why it doesn't motivate us to pray is because we do not see God as powerful. We do not see Him as our deliverance. We do not see the things that He has done as means to allow us to work together and to overcome any obstacle, difficulty, and situation that we're in which is why we can't work together well with other people, why we don't have hope, why we don't put ourselves out there in team situations, why we don't depend on God, why we don't pray. But prayer is the very means by which we have to wrestle with ourselves, the, the, the sin in our lives, the passivity in our lives, the doubt in our lives, in our hearts. That questions, God, can you really deliver me? Can you really open up my mind to believe that prayer works? That God, you work. God, you will deliver. I'm wondering if some of us are, are struggling or wrestling with the unbelief. If God really is there, or if He cares, or if He's actually strong enough to help us work through these situations. From, even for me, my process of learning how to pray has just been an ongoing process. Uh, I remember before I became Christian, uh, you know, when I was in life group community with a lot of Christian friends, you know, they would pray and like, lift up prayers that I thought were really ridiculous and superficial. I remember, you know, it was dead of winter, really cold. That was in the U.S. when it's, you know, winter and it's like minus 10, 15 degrees. And they were trying to start a car. And then they prayed, they lift up prayer, and the car wouldn't start over and over again. They said, okay, let's pray and let's believe God is going to allow the car to start. I was like, this is stupid. And then they pray, and they, after they said amen, they started the car, and do, 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 and it started. And they were like, yeah, praise God, prayer works. And I was like, wow, that's so dumb. That's such a coincidence. If they had just turned it on one more time, then it would have worked. And I remember after I became Christian, even though I thought prayer was more of just a meditative kind of thing that would just calm my heart, I began to pray and see different prayers answered. And it wasn't over a week, it wasn't over a month, it wasn't even over a year, it was over several years of praying and believing that God would do something. And I began to pray for different things and see different things happen. I remember one life group, I had a friend whose 
family member had uh, stage three or four cancer. And he just shared at a prayer request, and we came together as a life group together, and we just prayed. And again, it wasn't that week, it wasn't that month, but several months after, that life group member reported to us that that family member was free of cancer. Completely free. The doctors had no idea what happened, no idea why that was the case. And, and I just, all of a sudden, I was just like, I, I prayed for that person. I prayed for your family member. And it, it made something click in my mind, like, whoa, maybe prayer actually works. My, uh, in other areas of my life, my, I've been praying for my family, who are all pre-Christian, they're not believers. And I've been praying for them, like, God, like, we work, and I've been praying for a long time. And sometimes I can feel like discouraged, like, God, what are you doing? Where are you? But over the years, I've seen them take small steps, whether it's like being open to read the Bible or asking me to pray for them or even them giving Bibles to other family members, even though they don't believe. I'm like, God, what are you doing? Are my prayers, oh, wow, my prayers, God is actually using them somehow. And then finally, I began to see changes in my own life, again, over long periods of time. And uh, one thing that I personally struggle with, and um, I think those of you who might have known me from way back then, 10 years ago, I was like super unaware. And I'm still unaware in many times. And, you know, people will tell me like, hello. Um, <laughs> but one of my mentors brought this up as a serious issue because, you know, it hinders me from genuinely loving people. And they said, you know, there's a, there's a verse in the Bible that talks about if you just pray for something, like you pray for wisdom, sometimes God will just grant that to you. So just pray for awareness. Pray that you will be aware and grow in, you know, the Korean phrase is nunchi. Pray that you'll grow ninchi and awareness and knowing how other people are feeling and maybe you might grow. And uh, not that I'm there, not that I'm fully aware, but praise God, 10 years ago me to now me, I'm definitely more aware than I used to be. And praise God, God has used that and God has somehow heard that prayer and allowed me to experience that. And, and I'll confess that sometimes I still feel like, God, I don't know where you are. I still feel like sometimes prayer is like talking to the wind. You know, God, are you really there? Are you really listening? Is this really worth it? And I still struggle with that sometimes. And I know many of us, we struggle with that sometimes. And we might be in that moment of prayer and saying, God, is this really worth it? Is this really doing anything? Is this really worth the time? Because prayer, I mean, from the worldly perspective, prayer is one of the most useless things you can do. From the worldly, it is the most useless thing. What do you do? You sit there, mumble to yourself. Maybe you'll sing a song, but literally you're doing, you're doing nothing, nothing productive. You're not doing anything to move forward that project. You're not doing anything to somehow change the situation. You're just sitting there asking in the world's eyes what will be like an imaginary friend to somehow miraculously change things for you. But if you believe in the power of God and you've experienced certain things before and you see God has answered me in this area and that area and this area, then you start to realize there is power in prayer. There is something effective about petitioning this God who is our banner. And then all of a sudden this banner is no longer just a pole, it's no longer just a flag, but it's a symbol of God's power and His might and His deliverance in our lives. It's a symbol of His salvation. It's a symbol of His goodness. It's a symbol of how He's going to be faithful to us. And all of a sudden that becomes real. And all of a sudden it makes sense. Why would Moses lift up his hands all day? Why he would bring Aaron and her up with him to make sure his hands, why he would be interceding the whole time and why after all of that happened, he didn't give credit to Joshua. He didn't give credit to Aaron or her. He gave credit to whom? 
The Lord is our banner. He gave credit to the God who is our focus, who is our deliverance, who is the one who answers prayer, who is the one who changes hearts, who is the one who changes situations, who is the one who allows us to work together. And as we work together, as we depend and we see God as our banner, as our deliverance and our salvation, then we see the impossible happen. Things that we thought were impossible, things that we thought were completely out of our control, we see those things happen. I'm wondering if some of us, we need to believe that. That there are situations in our lives, like you still don't have a job. Your family member's still sick. Situation in Hong Kong, we're still in a lockdown. Cases are still rising. Political situation is not getting anything any better. I'm wondering if we would pray and come together as a church, what would God do? Ian Bounds, in his book, The Purpose in Prayer, in page 23, he says, We can do nothing without prayer. All things can be done by importunate prayer. Importunate means like unceasing, persevering over and over and over again. It surmounts or removes all obstacles, overcomes every resisting force and gains its ends in the face of inevitable hindrances. I'm wondering if we would recognize that's how prayer actually is. It is so powerful. All things can be done. There's nothing in this world circumstantially that will hinder us from being able to accomplish what God wants to accomplish. Let's put God as our banner. And He is our banner of salvation. And we'll just close with this verse. It says, Isaiah chapter 11, 10 and 12. In a New Living Translation, it says, In that day, the heir to David's throne, the heir to David's throne is a reference to Jesus Christ, will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him, and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. He will raise a flag, that flag, that word is the same as that banner word. He will raise a flag among the nations and assemble the exiles of Israel. He will gather the scattered people of Judah from the ends of the earth. How do we know this banner, this pole, this this symbol, this flag is going to deliver us? How, How do we know? We know because that symbol is Jesus. Jesus is our banner. He is our salvation. His his death on the cross, his life that he lived perfectly, his resurrection from the tomb where he says it is finished and then now he resurrects and he conquers death. That is our banner. That is our hope. That is our deliverance. That is our salvation. And if we believe in that, then all other things that we go through, we can believe and proclaim the Lord is our banner. He is our deliverance. And through every situation, as we put our faith to say, God, I believe in you as my Lord. I believe that you've saved me. I believe that you've covered over all my sins. And now I have this relationship with you. And now you are my banner. You are my protection. You are my deliverance. Then I believe there's nothing, there's nothing that we as a church cannot do to move God's kingdom forward. And I'm praying that we will believe that as a church. We will believe that and do incredible things in the situation in our city. And so I want to close with the one thing. The one thing for us to remember today is that when we pursue God through partnership and prayer, He provides a way through the impossible. When we pursue God through partnership and prayer, He provides a way through the impossible. And that way is through Jesus Christ. I'll give us some next steps as we close out today for this morning. The first is pursue opportunities to grow in your character. 
pursue opportunities to grow in your character. Just as we talked about Joshua and, and Aaron and her and Moses, and we saw different character traits that are required for good partnership, I want to challenge us. Identify which of those traits, which of those characteristics do you feel like you lack the most? And, and highlight that and share it with someone. And share it with your LCG. Share it with your accountability and say, hey, I really need to grow in this. I, I really need to grow in other-centeredness because, man, I, I just live such a self-centered life. Call me out in those moments. Give me different practical things to do so that I can exercise that. Secondly, pinpoint who your partners in ministry are. Pinpoint who your partners in ministry are. I'm wondering if there are people, whether it's in our life groups, our ministry teams, that we haven't really seen as partners in ministry, where they're just people. But I'm wondering if we would actually come together as a team, we would actually come together as life groups, as communities, at campuses, as life stages to say, this is our mission, this is our goal, let's work together and form that sense of identity and unity to accomplish something greater, whether it's to reach that campus. I hope some of you are thinking about that for the coming semester. To reach the city, to reach your colleagues. Hey, let's work together. Hey, brother, hey, sister. I'm really trying to reach out to this person, but you know, I really need some help. Can you help me? Thirdly, pray through the impossible. Pray through the impossible. Some of us, were still in really difficult circumstances that we just don't believe that God can work. We need to pray. We need to come back to God. And that's the process of wrestling, of meditating. God, I don't believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Pray through the impossible. And fourthly, partner together for OCR. OCR, for those of you who don't know, it stands for Operation Campus or Operation City Reach. As we look toward August, it's coming up really soon. We have no idea what's going to happen. But we have to partner together for OCR. Because there's no way that one person by themselves can do everything, can reach out to people, can think of all the creative ideas in the world. But we have to think together. We have to work together to say, God, even if the semester looks completely different, even if the lockdown is work from home and I can't even be in the same building as my colleagues anymore, God, how can I still accomplish your purpose? How can we still see people come to know Christ? I'm wondering if we pray and we partner together, we will actually see more people come to know Christ this year than we did in previous years. Because there's more hopelessness, there's more desperation, there's more need with everything happening in this world for the gospel to go forth. And so my prayer is that we'll actually do that together as we partner and move forward in partnership. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.